Hello and welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Rufus Peabody. Rufus, thank you very much for coming on. Before we get into this episode, make sure you follow us on Twitter, at BettingPod, and check out the website, businessofbetting.com. Guest suggestions are much appreciated. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Proprietary Limited. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Rufus Peabody. Rufus, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Jake. So Rufus, most know you from Bet the Process podcast or maybe Massey Peabody. Tell us how you got started. What was the the first exposure you had to sports betting? So I guess the first exposure I had to sports betting was in high school when I ran March Madness NCAA tournament pools. But that that's not betting in the real sense. It's more game theory. And, and I, I think at one point in college, I signed up for one of these, I don't even remember what site it was, probably Bodog or something, and put like $50 in. And I fancied, I fancied myself you know, to know a little bit about baseball, but, but I had absolutely no analytics behind it. And I think I, I remember put like losing a few bets and then putting the remainder on the angels laying minus 150 in some game and, and losing that and being like, okay, you know, I'm not any good at this, but I read an article in ES on ESPN.com. I guess this was in 2007 by Gene Wojciechowski, where he was embedded with Las Vegas sports consultants uh, on selection Sunday. And so he, I think the article basically said, if you, you think you, you think you knew, know sports, you think you know NCAA basketball, like you actually know nothing. These people will tell you exactly how you're wrong. And, and so, I mean, the company Las Vegas Sports Consultants consulted at the time for 90% of the legal sports books in the state of Nevada. So they provided opening odds. And I read this article and I thought it was the most fascinating, interesting thing ever because I'd, I'd always been interested in the number side of sports growing up. And, and I was like, this is like my dream job. So I, you know, Googled the company. I found a like website with absolutely nothing on it and, but a contact phone number and, and called and tried to get in touch with the, the head honcho there, Kenny White. And, you know, I think it was like phone tag for, for at least a month where they said like, call back in two Sundays at 3 PM. And I did, and they'd forgotten all about me by that time. So, uh, but eventually I talked my way into an internship out there where I had, and I actually got Yale to pay for, uh, I got Yale to actually pay for me to go out there. Cause at the time I, I wanted to do my senior thesis on, um, on, I, how did I express it? I said like analyzing like the integrity of amateur athletics, basically trying to detect point shaving and stuff like that. And, and it just so happened that during this, my summer out at LVSC, I happened – well, the Tim Donahue story happened to break. So I actually got a chance firsthand to, to sort of look into the you – know, try to detect the, the point shaving. 
But after that, I, I decided to do my senior thesis on psychological inefficiencies in the baseball betting market and to build a baseball betting model, which was a lot more practically useful, as it turns out. And I took a job with LVSC out of college. And after working there for a year, I was in which I was mostly you know, developing my own models, like doing stuff with NFL props. I was, I was doing stuff for the, with the company, monitoring line movements and stuff as well, but, but spending a lot of time on my own developing models and, and hustling from casino to casino, you know, placing bets and finding good derivative values and just all, all the sort of small market stuff that you do when you're, when you're starting. And, and, you know, after a year, I, I had made connections with people that were well-financed and willing to, to basically give me a shot and bankroll me. And, and so after a really good month to start the baseball season, these guys were basically convinced me to quit because that I was basically working for minimum wage at LVSC. And, and I had made my yearly salary in my first month um, with these other guys. So um, it was the best decision I ever made. Tell me about the Tim Donahue stuff. What was your experience with what happened there? So to be honest, my analysis was was I mean, looking at it now was not incredibly detailed or rigorous in any form, but what I found was that the it was it was a trend towards the over. It was something like 20 and 2 in in games where you had a, this sort of you had a strong move to the over, but it wasn't just a, a big move to the over. It was uh, you had a bunch of different line moves, especially close to game time, and you had a lot of resistance at the end. So, and the and it and the moves were right around like 6 p.m., which is, I, you know, I think I guess the theory goes that's when these local bookies are closing up and, and trying to lay their action offshore. And so, uh, those trend it, it was a very strong trend, but at the same time, like you know, I di- I didn't actually have data from every other referee to compare it to. So it wasn't a rigorous analysis in, in any way, shape, or form. But the funny thing is nobody in the office there had a true stats background. And, and I was just an econ major who had taken a few stats courses. And I happened to actually have more of a statistical background than, than anybody else at the office. If I told you today that there was cricket match fixing going on and I gave you a whole bunch of data that you could find in 2019 do you think you would have a better chance of finding real evidence or proof of certain match fixing or any sport not just cricket better a better chance than than back then where it sounds like there wasn't enough access to enough information or enough detailed referee statistics or enough even betting data information yeah i think so i think having that information is is extremely valuable for that i don't think it would be an easy thing to do at all and i think I don't think you can ever prove that something is necessarily wrong. I mean, I guess it's the equivalent of, I mean, you're the lawyer here, but the, what circumstantial evidence or, or something like that you can, but it, I guess it can, it can inform, uh, it can inform where to look right. And where to sort of dig deeper. Yeah. There's always a threshold or a burden. And I guess with sports and generally how sports work around the world, there's different access to information through the sport and also different, you know, powers that police may not even have so anyway it's a story for another day i'm curious in your first year at lvsc did you love what you were doing and i guess coming straight out of yale and writing a thesis and and all of that it was probably a crazy experience for you yeah i I did love it i remember you know it was my first time living on my own too i mean it's just I, i don't know what was your first job out of college do you remember that well 
Yeah, I worked in a restaurant called the Fitz Cafe, making coffees or delivering coffees, I suppose. Uh, and I'm guessing it had its ups and downs. Correct. And and that's I think that was that was my experience at LVSC. The job the job was amazing, but I, you know I paid virtually nothing. I think my salary was twenty five thousand dollars, and I had just bought a used car, a two thousand eight Honda Civic. And driven it cross country from from DC, um, which is where I grew up, the DC area, to to Vegas. And I, I by the way, I still have that car. Um, it's it's still out in Vegas, but but I remember before I got my, I, I had to spend all this money to to get an apartment before I actually got my first paycheck. And I, I still remember once, like literally, crying in the bathroom stall. Of, of of LVSC to my mom and being like, I don't think I'm going to be able to make it. Like it was, I just had one of those moments where I think this was the three weeks into the job where I was like, like, you know, I don't think this is going to be able to work, but, but, um, luckily it did. And, and it was a, it was a fantastic year it was a fantastic job. And, and I, I, you know, I, there weren't the people I was working with weren't, stats people per se, but they were all people that had a lot of years of experience in this industry and they were extremely comfortable with numbers and, you know, had developed their own systems. And, and while it's not advanced statistical analysis, it's, it's, you know, a lot of research and they worked really hard. And, and what impressed me, Kenny White, for example, my, my boss had, you know, he actually asked me to look and try to see the value of different things you know, for, uh, different, I guess, statistics for basketball in terms of developing this rating system he did. And, and he, he had had these values he assigned to them in, in terms of assigning a player a rating. And when I actually looked statistically at it, it was amazing how close the numbers that he had sort of come up with, presumably out of thin air, just based on his knowledge of the sport and years of experience. Like, they were so close to what statistically, like what my regression said they should have been, so... Yeah, that's a fascinating concept and idea that certain people have the ability to, I guess, internalize and process what they know and understand and assign values that are close to what the st- statistics people or the modelers out there would find. Yeah, and, and the funny thing is, I mean, I used to discount this whole experience thing. And I think looking back on my time at LBSC, I think I I know I there are, I think, two people especially that I feel like I kind of rubbed the wrong way or were a little bit, I think, threatened by me. or Because I, I think I came in sort of saying, like, you know, I've looked at this academically. I had actually, the summer before, the, the, the same, right before I did my internship at LVSC, I'd been hired by a professor at Yale to do this research. Um, well, I had applied for this research opportunity on something else, but I had talked to him about all this this research I was doing myself on point shaving and stuff just on my own. And he saw my passion, I guess. And actually he had to referee a paper on related to sports betting. And so he had me do an academic literature review on sports betting. So before I went out there, I had this, like I had read every academic paper about sports betting in the last like 35, 40 years. I knew all about like, you know, the utility theory and basically just all these theories explaining, you know, all these biases in the market why bookmakers like should shade the line, you know, somewhere between the true price and and the price that that 
um, equalizes supply and demand. And so I think I came in there a little bit, a little arrogant. I thought I knew everything and I, I certainly didn't. And so it's, but it's funny now when I've, when I've worked with, um, some other people or, or tried to bring on people, some of the, the guys I talked to, like, they kind of remind me of, of me then. And I feel like they, they have this great statistical background or, or they have these skills, but at the same time, I'm sort of like, well, but you need to approach it like this. My, I, I've realized there is something to experience and having done this so many times and having made mistakes, you kind of see the way things, see what works and see what doesn't work. So that first month you spent betting baseball that you referenced earlier where you won a fair bit of money, looking back, was that luck and variance in a very small sample size that went your way? Or do you think you were just well and truly really, really, really positive EV and most of the time you would have ended up on the right side? So I think I had an edge for sure, but I think it was definitely positive variance having a, having a really good first month. And if I had had, you know, let's say I'd had like a, a uh, let's say, I don't know how many signals it was like to the positive, but what if I had like a two standard devi- deviations worse than expected month? You know, those people probably would not have wanted to keep me on. They might have decided to quit on the free roll and I could be in a different industry entirely. Absolutely. And those free rolls, do they still happen today? Well, I mean, I know people still do free rolls. I don't have a ton of experience with them, but. I think they do make sense for somebody that is like, if you want to, I mean, I I like the idea of somebody having skin in the game. So let's say someone came to me with this idea for a model or they thought they had a good model. Um, I think it does make some sense if, if it's over a long enough period of time where, where the incentives are truly aligned and you, and you think that it's a positive EV play, but it's, I guess giving somebody a free roll, an up and coming handicapper is, is a, is a gamble on its own, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's certainly not something you hear about or people talk about too much. And I guess even if it does happen, that person who is betting their model probably doesn't want to go into too much detail detail about it anyway. That's true. So I guess one question I was going to ask later on, but I'll ask now is around how do you battle the small sample size element to sports betting with having confidence in your model and trying to find that those plus EV bets? I mean, that's that's tough. It's I guess from a psychological perspective, it's tough, but I, I kind of rely on, on the long-term track record. And I mean, I guess one example is the, the Massey Peabody stuff I do, the, our NFL picks against the spread uh, were, were very bad in 2016, which was the year I, I did some work for ESPN. And I think every time I went on TV and gave a pick, it basically lost. I, I went something like 1-11 in 11 on SportsCenter. But overall, it was it was the first year we'd had for Massey Peabody where our picks had a losing record, and we bounced back in 2017. But 2018 was had a losing record as well. But but the other thing is, but the thing with that is that despite the fact that my the picks I gave out lost, like the stuff I was betting overall won. And the problem, I mean, because I'm betting myself on generally on earlier in the week with NFL stuff. And so a lot of the plays I'm giving out are ones that had market resistance and the market is getting more efficient. And so even though I'm down over the course of three seasons, I still think that the stuff I'm giving out does have some value. I don't think it has necessarily the same value that it, that it used to have or, or that a play with the same 
the same projected edge, not accounting for the the time of the week, basically, because I, I regress my stuff str- more to the market later in the week than I do early in the week, because I think that the, the market is less, I mean, the market is obviously less efficient earlier in the week. So, um, but I still think it has positive EV. It is frustrating that the stuff that I've, I mean, this is kind of what I do to, in a way, prove myself, right? I mean, because every, like everybody's judged against something and, and, and the Massey Peabody picks sort of made a name for themselves because they were winning picks and they were free and they were publicly available. And, and, so for three years, our picks have are down over that span, but so that's frustrating. But at the same time, you know, I have to I have to trust the fact that you know I've still been making money overall betting NFL in that time frame. It's just one. It's one of those things. And and, and also, you know, if if let's say you're expecting to hit fifty four percent, and you, you're you're let's say picking sixty games a season. I mean you're going to have a good fraction of those seasons where you hit below 50%. So, Yeah, there's a lot of simulations that you know hit well below as well. So it's, I guess, one question on the betting side then, and you mentioned NFL and you know, a 50, 60 pick sample size is obviously not a lot at all. And if someone agrees that markets tend towards efficiency and NFL is probably the most efficient market in the world or one of, then it probably sounds like a good idea to utilize that number as an anchor and then go from there and try and implement, you know, first half, second halves, other derivatives, if you can prop bets and things like that. Is that something that you would advise generally for a lot of people who are looking at those picks? They're not just, they're not just something to go and bet. It's something to utilize as a rating as something within your arsenal. Yes. I think that's the case for sure. Especially if you have, these sort of models to price derivatives. But, um, I mean, because I, I myself am betting, yes, first half, second halves, not as much in props anymore just because the limits aren't really there and it's easy way to, well, bet, you know, betting a bunch of props is a great way to, like, lose places to bet. But I, I think, interestingly, though, I think the prop market may be, and I think, well, you, you can speak to this more than I can, but, but, with legalization, I think, and, and places like DraftKings and FanDuel seeming to have a lot of offerings there, I think the prop market could actually get a little bit bigger going forward. Yeah, it, it'll depend on how quickly things roll out and the different offerings in different states. But it's certainly something that's talked about a lot. It's certainly talked about a lot on U.S. sports currently. So we'll, we'll see how that evolves and if the leagues want to embrace it, if the operators want to embrace it and how it ultimately ends up. On the on the modeling side, how so? For example, that NFL model you mentioned, let's say over a six season period, how much of it is changing? How much of it is updating? You don't have to speak anything proprietary, but just generally, is it being tweaked a fair bit, or is it steady and stable across that period of time? No, there have been tweaks, and if you if you go back, so we started this in two thousand ten, and and the whole the impetus for this was this journalist, Michael Salfino came to Cade Massey and Cade was my senior thesis advisor at Yale uh, about, he approached him about an NFL rating system for the wall street journal. Cause Michael was doing some writing for the wall street journal and Cade came to me with, and, and said, you know, if I do this, let's like, how would you want to collaborate on it? And so it, it started out as only 
is just ratings based on what happened on the field during the season. So for the first two seasons, we didn't use priors at all. And so we had some crazy looking things early in the season. And it was more of the intention wasn't as much to be like just betting. It was, it was, I mean, because obviously you can get a lot more information using a prior, like not knowing, you know, thinking that Peyton Manning is the same quarterback as, um, I don't know, Mark Redmond going into a season is, you know, is not really, you're throwing out a lot of signal that way. But, but then we kind of, when I realized how well it actually was doing, despite the fact, like, especially later in the season, despite the fact that it wasn't using priors, like against the spread, I was like, well, let's, let's do this for real. Let's implement priors. And, and, and so, so that was our first big change in going to the 2012 season. And, and it became like more of a true, like predictive model. And we've made changes every off season since we've tweaked things and, and tried some things. But at the same time, I think part of the beauty of it is in its simplicity. We don't try to, we're not, we're not overfitting too much. I think we're trying, what we're trying to do is contextualize as much as we can. And I'm not going to get into too many of the details, but 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 we every off season we we get together and and we have ideas for how to improve it based on what we've seen during the season and just our thoughts. And I try to like I try to write those down during the season, but it's you know it's it's hard. And it seems like I always get inspiration during the season, and that's the time where I never have time to actually work on things. And so it, inevitably, it's July, and and we're sort of like. What, what did we want to fix with this model? What did we want to improve on? Tell me about Cade. I, I don't, I've never met him. I've never spoken to him. He seems like a fascinating character in many ways. And I know he did that paper with Richard Thaler a number of years ago about the value of draft picks in the NFL, which, again, years later seems like it hasn't been implemented very well by most teams. But what's it like working with someone like him? Cade is a fantastic guy. It's He... He guided me through the whole senior thesis and, and helped me. I mean, I I was someone that had a lot of enthusiasm, but I hadn't really, uh, I didn't have a ton of coding experience at the time, and he kind of steered me in that direction. And there, I would not be where I am without Cade. He's just, he's a fabulous person. He's brilliant. And, you know, I, I think the work he does too, like, I mean, sports is just a side thing for him. He doesn't bat, he, it's, he he researches like overconfidence, um, optimism. You know, he's a professor. He's technically, I guess, called a professor of the practice at Wharton. But but he does organizational behavior stuff, which I mean, I, I think it's fascinating. And and the applications in, I mean, I think that the like the analytics analytics has sort of become this big thing at sports. But but he co-hosts or co-runs this conference every year at Wharton called the People Analytics Conference and. And he's been nice enough to to give me a, a ticket each of the well I missed last year but I guess three straight years and and like and the analytics of like hiring people and firing people and, and figuring out um, how to make organizations run efficiently you know figuring out which guy is undervalued in a particular organization maybe he doesn't you know his productivity in his particular area doesn't look that great but he's sort of this linchpin. Uh, you know, people, he helps all these people around him perform, he or she, I should say, perform at, at a higher level. And so I think it's, this kind of stuff has, has implications far bigger than sports. Yeah, it's in, entirely fascinating. And 
I think I've listened to too many episodes of the uh, Wharton Moneyball show where he talks about some of this stuff and you can just tell by listening to him, even if sports is a side gig and a hobby, it's pretty cool. One question I want to ask about betting markets. Do you sit in front of a screen all day watching lines move or do you, what role do you play on the betting side of things? Obviously there's the handicapping and the modeling and then there's, you know, the betting and the execution on the other side of it. So I do not sit in front of a, a screen all day. There was a time when I did. Um, at this point, I have somebody else doing that who's outside the United States. And I'm mostly doing, uh, I'm trying to automate as many processes as I can so I can free up more time to you know, do my podcast no. <laughs> and, and to uh, work on research and development stuff. But, but it's hard. It seems like things become, every year things are more complex and it gets harder and harder to, to have times to have enough time uh, to sort of spend on the R&D side. In fact, I, I read this book a few years ago. It's called Essentialism, and I still remember this. They said that basically if, you, if you're successful in a field, what got you there, it, it, it becomes harder and harder to sustain that success because there becomes all these other time pressures and things pulling you away from, from the thing that originally made you successful. And I think, I mean, uh, I think a good analogy and I don't know if this is true or not. There's, this is not a, a, a this is not empirically based opinion, but it seems like a lot of um, musical artists have some of their best work early in their career when they probably have all this time to spend on the music. That's what they're able to focus on. Whereas you get successful, you, you get your time is you're being pulled in all these different directions. You have to, you know update an Instagram account saying what you're eating for breakfast to your fans. You have to tour, you have to do photo shoots, right? You don't have, you don't have time to, you don't have the same amount of time to spend on the music. And so I think I have spread myself a little bit too thin. It feels like, um, but it's, it's hard to know where I can really cut things out. And, and at the same time, I, I want to sort of grow and, and get bigger. And it's not like, I mean, I'm already, I'm, I, I do golf, I do baseball and I do, both professional and college football. And I feel like I'm stretched pretty thin as it is, but, but at the same time, like there's all these other markets that I'm interested in. So right now I'm trying to, uh, what I'd like to do is have everything as automated as possible so that I can attack some new things and sort of with that sort of passion that I, I used to have uh, looking at new sports. Makes sense. But do you guys have, you know, detailed conversations about, how to implement Kelly or, you know, bet sizing or anything like that? Or are you staying right away from that? No, I mean, so I have things set up. There's a system in place. So, you know, someone, um, my trader can, can put what the market number is and it'll, it'll tell him what a particular bet size should be. And I think the, the, the sport where I'm dealing with Kelly the most is probably baseball. And because it's, you have so many games and, and, and uh, you, well, actually, you can't get down that much, but but it's also the it's also the one I'm the most conservative in, just because baseball is the sport I take the most personally, because it's where I got my start. So if, if I have a bad season, it literally it actually it's the one sport where it actually does get to me mentally. Sorry, I'm getting off topic a little bit, but yes, um, yes, there is guidance on bet sizing. Do you have separate banks for each sport you bet into? What do you mean by that? So do you have a college football fund and a professional football fund, a golf fund and a baseball fund, or is it all just one pooled account? 
Nope, just just a, a pool of money because it's. I mean, there's no fund. I mean, it's. I'm betting for myself. You know, it's. I have a business partner, and we're betting for ourselves. It's that simple. Makes sense. Makes sense. So, quite literally, when you started doing this, or you set everything up to start doing this, what was the motivation? What did you set out to achieve when you wanted to bet professionally? Did you have a? Did you want to be wealthy and rich? Did you want to try and be, you know, a successful gambler? Did you want to just beat the closing line as many times as possible? Was there anything that sticks out in your mind? I wanted to be the best. I wanted to be known. I wanted to be someone that was sort of respected by my peers as being someone that was at the top of the top of his game. And, and I, that, I guess, and that, that drove me and, and, and I wanted to prove, and I think being able to do this for a living was a way to sort of, to prove that I have those skills and that I could, I could cut it. And, and that, and, but honestly, I just kind of, I fell into this. Like I never intended to be a professional gambler. And when I moved out to Vegas in 2008 and took a job with LVSC, I, it, the thought like hadn't even crossed my mind. I know that seems a little odd. Like I had done a senior thesis looking at inefficiencies in the baseball betting market and developing a, a, a winning baseball betting model, but I hadn't thought about doing it for a living ever. So if someone gets in the same position as you were back then and is starting out modeling and betting sports professionally, can they just, football for example, can they take DVOA or a few other statistics and create a decent enough model and then try and execute properly and, and be successful? Or is there leaps and bounds more things that go into it than that oversimplification? Um, I mean, I would say that there is value to the execution side and the trading. And so, you know, if you have enough, if, if you're, you're monitoring a screen all day and, and you have a bunch of accounts and can pick off the best numbers, you know, you can win that way and, and grind out an edge. But I, I do think something like DVOA is, is so well known that it's going to be priced in. And I think, you know, it's just sort of the same goes in baseball for like the, you know, steamer projections or something like that, or Picota, because that's publicly available. And so I think that there, there is value, even if let's, let's say that my projections aren't as good as for baseball, aren't as good as the steamer or the Picota, but if they're sufficiently different and they add something, that's where the value comes in. So I just think that the problem with DV, like if you, if you just took DVOA stuff, every, anybody can do that. That's, that, that's publicly available. It's priced into the market. Plus their picks haven't done that well. Well, that's, yeah, that's another thing. How do you figure out what's priced in? Do you have a process for that? Um, well, so I'm just developing my own models from scratch from, from the bottom up. And so I'm creating my own statistics at each stage, trying to trying to sort of separate fundamentals signal from noise. And so how do I, I guess in terms of empirically verifying what's priced in and what isn't at the end, yes, I can kind of look and see and, and say, okay, like strikeout percentage is still undervalued by the market for a pitcher, which by the way, I don't think is the case anymore. Or, you know, turnovers might be still overvalued by the market. But at the same time, I think that you know those inefficiencies are going to, um, well, if they haven't already, those, those are going to um, disappear over time. And so, what I'm concerned with overall is just I'm coming up with a predicted number, and I'm seeing how much predictive power that has relative to the line. 
and and they're I'm not counting on the fact that that it's this one particular part of my model that is where the value comes from. You know, I'm just looking at the model as a whole because I think that that those things can change. You know, the fact that the market might the market will catch up on something, but it might the pricing might get off on something else. So I kind of think if if I if I make my model as good as I can then and it has predicted power relative to the closing line, I should be solid. Yeah, that makes sense. And one example from the playoffs that uh, drives a lot of people nuts, especially professional bettors, is when I think it was the Chargers went to the East Coast like three times in three or four weeks and traveled all these miles, and they played the Patriots in Foxborough, and the line was four or four and a half or whatever it was, and then they lost by a million and everyone says, well, that wasn't factored in, or it was factored in, and it was factored in way too much, and that's why the line was only four and a half and not seven. All of that is largely irrelevant noise because it's you and your number versus what you can bet, right? Right, and, and, and my number is going to factor that in if it's a good number. So I think that's the thing where people talk about – people are talking about trends. You know, you have a lot of touts that will justify a pick by saying that, you know, a team coming off of a home loss playing a team that had back-to-back road wins by three or fewer points is, you know, 11, three and three against the spread from week 16 onward, you know, things like that. And the question is, is there any fundamental, is there any signal to that? I think the, the example of the chargers and their travel. Yeah. I mean, I think you can quantify, you can quantify the effect of that travel distance and the time zone change and um, or you you can estimate it. You know, it's it's hard to be to get it down to that level of precision. It's harder. It's even harder still to say what the effect is the, from the fact that they flew all the way back from Baltimore to L.A. and then back to uh, to to Foxborough. But if there is an effect, like it, I think you want to be able to you you don't want to count on a market being efficient for a particular reason or, or a certain thing continuing to be mispriced. I think what you want to do is be able to uh, quantify the impact of the thing you think is mispriced into a model. And if you show an edge, then bet it. But that way you, you can see that way if, if the market is is actually pricing that particular thing more accurately because you'll see that you don't have the same edges anymore. And, and But to your example, I mean, San Diego, or sorry, L.A., they traveled to Baltimore the week before before uh, New England and, you know, played quite well there. They had the same travel schedule then. I mean, I know that the next week they had to go all the way back and forth, but, I mean. Yeah, it's it's a bizarre thing, and now with the London games, it keeps coming up again, like which team traveled on the Monday or which, you know, all these travels. Even, like, the Broncos and Altitude. It's like as if Altitude just decided to appear that weekend for that game or <laughs> you see Von Miller breathing out of a machine and it might impact his performance because he's tired or it might be that he's getting more, you know, pure oxygen in his system so he's going to have more sacks or whatever it might be. It's just a bizarre narrative trend, crazy world that we live in, especially now when everyone's trying to, or seemingly trying to one-up someone else with a better narrative. Yeah, I mean that's what it is mostly is narratives. I think there's there is so much information out there though that that I don't know that most people don't know. And the problem is it, most of it like I mean you you're there's no way of knowing these things for sure. And so 
I think a lot of it, and, and honestly, this is kind of where the art comes in. And I think the experience, my experience in this comes in and being able to say, Oh, you know, I still, I saw this, there's this effect over 10 games. This looks legitimate, but it's only 10 games. It seems extreme. Like what is, do I think this is a real effect? How, how much of it is going to persist? Like a good example for that is, is the Super Bowl. The fact that first halves tend to be way less high scoring than second halves. In fact, Going into this Super Bowl, I believe, since 2000, second halves had seven more points on average than first halves. And so, because one of those props for the Super Bowl is, is you know, first half scoring versus second half scoring. And, and second half scoring has been um, a major favorite, like to the tune of, I think, minus 150 or so. And it's one of those where it's like, well, how do you answer that question? Like, how much of that effect is real? You know, it, and, and I think I tend to be dubious of these things unless I can really have a, a narrative that I think is rock solid. I mean, you can create a narrative for the Super Bowl and say that you know, teams are nervous, they come out tentative, they don't want to lose the game at the beginning. But why, why isn't that narrative the same for, for conference championship games where it's also a must-win game? Or, you could, I mean, Super Bowl has a longer halftime. Maybe it's that. I don't know, but maybe if... Can you? What happens with college football games where you have, you know, a, a lightning delay or something, and teams go back in the locker room for for thirty, forty-five minutes? Should there be more scoring after that? So I think, I think looking more broadly at things is probably the best way to answer those questions in that case. But sorry, I'm I'm rambling on and on and get going off of the path. Of- no, no, that's perfect. So tell me, how do you think they? Or you probably experienced it back then, the LVSC guys and Kenny and whoever else was there in those rooms. How did they handle those things back then and even people today in, in a similar vein? I don't know. I mean, we have more databases now, so we can do more data mining. But I almost think that looking through a database and, and just is almost the, the easier thing to do than actually coming up with a model. And it's, and it's an easy way to sound smart, too. You know, if you, if you come up with some esoteric trend, you you could sound you know it sounds like you've done a lot of research on something, and honestly, it's challenging for me like on the podcast and if if I'm talking about a game to actually give a good reason I like the game because it feels kind of deceptive no matter what I'm what I'm saying you know and and I have to actually do extra work to look up like some trend or or some sort of factoid but um, but honestly I don't I, I don't really know if if people if these you know, how much they were utilized by the LVSC guys. I would say a decent amount. But I, I think the the reason people are drawn to those types of things is because it's the same reason people look at, at patterns in the stock market and sort of think that they can be able to predict predict it, you know, these seemingly random lines. And it's because we tend to sort of, humans in general, tend to look for patterns in things and seek explanation it's, I mean, why, why do you think so many people are religious? I mean, it's, we seek explanation and, and we, we want to, we want to be able to understand something. And so we tend to miss, like if, if, if people are shown a, a sequence of, um, of coin flips, like a hundred coin flips, they will overwhelmingly, if they don't like think that the, co- and they're asked if the coin was biased or not, that, um, this was a psychological study done, like overwhelmingly more people than uh, did not found that 
that it was actually they thought it was biased and in fact it wasn't like you're gonna get you know streaks of like eight heads in a row or eight tails in a row and that's not unusual so let me ask you this then domain expertise how important is it to you like golf for example if you've never played a game of golf in your life do you need to know what it's like standing over a six foot putt and how that impacts or do you need to know the ins and outs of courses or can you find all that out and and crunch all those numbers analytically yourself without having played one round of golf in your life i think you need to have some knowledge of a sport for sure and i think that for me i'm not some statistical genius or anything i don't have the i'm not a i wasn't a math major i don't there are people that will blow me out of the water with mathematical and statistical skills and i think i think my advantage comes largely from the fact that I, I do love and that, well, I almost said did love, but that I grew up loving sports and loving the number side of sports and, and had all these questions and just theories on why things worked the way they did. And I think if you don't have those theories, you don't, you don't have anything to test. And, and so it's why if I was to decide to handicap cricket, I would have, you know, I don't think, I would have a big advantage there unless I really got to know the game well to be able to sort of ask questions about it. So so I think it's very important. So do you ever use subjective factors and things that you have to use the eye test or gut feel or whatever it might be to help or assist any of your handicapping? So injuries, yeah. Injuries are one thing. I mean, they're, they're, they can be quite hard to quantify. If I read somewhere that this guy is dealing with the flu – and I show value on him on a golf matchup, I might say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold off on this particular matchup. So that, that's something where I definitely don't have a, I can't quantify the effect of it, but I'd rather be cautious than, um, than throw my money at something where I don't know if it's actually, you know, if, if it's actually a good bet. I think with props, there's a lot of subjectivity as well. A good example would be the, uh, the Super Bowl and the, Rams running back situation with with CJ Anderson and Todd Gurley and everybody had a theory well most people just had no idea what was going on I even heard somebody say that the theory like that there's you know that maybe Gurley had some sort of you know mental condition or something and 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 his meds stopped working like I mean everybody you can come up with any theory you want and and but if you're if you're handicapping a prop like like Todd Gurley over under number of rushing attempts or CJ Gurley rushing, att- or sorry, CJ Anderson rushing attempts, you know, I have to make some assumptions. And so it's, and they're going to be somewhat subjective. I just try to approach it in a logical way and, and, and make, and factor in that uncertainty as much as I can. Don't be overconfident in it. Have you reviewed how those bets have gone when you either have pulled out and not played or, have gone ahead regardless of the uncertainty? You know what? I haven't. And I, I wish I had, you know, I think it would have been great if I had kept that data or, or jotted those down. And along those lines, I mean, think about this. Like, uh, that's where I get market resistance. Let's say I, I bet some matchup at minus 120. It moves to minus 150, and then it ends up moving back to the other side and end, ends at minus 110. Like how? What's what's my true edge on those? I, I I kind of wish I had jotted those down and like had some record of all this, so I could actually look and see how much that market resistance is worth. Like, because it would be good to know if if 
if I should I at that point should I be you know doubling down betting more at minus 110 or do I say okay you know there's obviously some other people sharp people in the market they're moving lines that that are on the other side of this and so my 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 number is probably not quite as strong it's hard being a professional sports but there's so much to figure out not a lot of time there is a question around things that annoy you obviously limits is one thing but outside of that as a professional gambler any things that you wish you could change or things you hope in the future get better i I wish the tout the tout industry was more regulated even though i don't i'm not personally a big person on regulation in general um i think I think it's it's an industry that takes advantage of people and and it takes advantage of the biases in in people's thinking. The fact that we do see patterns, right? I mean, we see this guy's on all these amazing streaks, eleven and two on his three star plays, and so they take a lot of money from people. And so I I, I would like to see that, um, and I would like to see more sharp books out there in general that are willing to take action from from sharper betters. And I think that. They can, and, and you know, I could be completely wrong about this, but I, I would be, you know, it's something that I would like to actually take a stab at. Um, and that, that's the fact that I think that you can be a successful bookmaker taking sharp action, investing in analytics and, and like basically the pinnacle model. Yeah. It's a, fa- a fascinating one. Booking like a better. Yep. Certainly in the U S market down the line. Yeah. And, and if, if you have the ability to sort of, um, to, to do both sort of the buy and the sell side, if you had access to sort of a, a B2B exchange, you could lay off action or, or take more action from, you know, and, and I think, I don't know, I mean, I, I think it's in a way like it would be the best way to, I mean, I think it would be a great way to actually bet for a living. Certainly. And it, it, if you're having issues with limits and getting bets down in volume and things like that, one way to solve that is to jump over the other side. But that maybe that's a discussion for another day. I want to ask about all the people that reach out to you. You're pretty well known in this space. I'm sure you get hundreds of emails and Twitter messages and all that type of thing. What do you tell a lot of those people, especially the ones who are asking for advice and what to do when they're starting out? Learn how to code, learn statistics, read books. So on the books, have you got any suggestions? Books related to randomness, I like. You know, I like uh, Fooled by Randomness, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, even though. I think the guy's quite arrogant, and but he's very smart. And I also liked The Signal and the Noise by Nate Silver. Those two people hate each other, by the way. So <laughs> Yes. Um, <laughs> those are the two that immediately come to mind. What about on the academic paper side? I want to ask you about the hot hand fallacy question mark and momentum. Um, but are there any of those that you've read and you go back to every now and then? Well, I read all those papers back in 2007, and I have not read them since then. But I mean, I do think I, I, I do think that actually reading all those academic papers um, really helped me. And in my experience during that intern, doing that internship in Vegas wouldn't have been the same if I didn't have that background. So you know, I had, I hadn't actually thought about that till now. But I think I do think if, if you're inclined and and you're willing to weed through some potentially dry writing that that reading um reading those academic papers on sports betting definitely can give you some theories yeah a lot of graphs and uh, appendices and exhibits and all that so rufus 2019 
what is your thoughts or what are your thoughts on the hot hand fallacy and generally momentum in sports? Does it exist or is it just that it's a fallacy? I think it definitely exists. The question is, can you quantify it and, and can you distinguish the times there is truly momentum from the times where you think there is? So, I mean, if you've played sports, I mean, like I was shooting hoops today and I hit eight three pointers in a row at one point just because I, I just, I was, I, I, my muscle memory, you know, felt this, you know, motion that worked, but then I missed like five in a row. So it's, I would say after six in a row is more likely to make the next one. But in the thing is in sports, you rarely are repeating the same thing over and over and over again without, you know, all this, you know, you might without a lot of action in between. If I would say maybe the hot hand could exist if, if a player got to shoot a hundred straight free throws in a row, yes, but they're shooting two in a row generally. Right. Yeah. The other thing is I do think that the hot hand in a way, I mean, recent performance is more predictive than performance further back. And so I think if, if you assume that someone's skills are static, then I guess hot, the hot hand could sort of be more of a proxy for the fact that, skills aren't static and we do learn more from more recent performance there's there's so much that can go into it if you really keep digging and digging and digging and throwing in all different elements and variables because in reality that's the way it is if it's your eight three-point shots there's uh more than a handful of variables was it at dawn was it at dusk was it in the wind was all this sort of stuff which is can be thrown into the mix so one final point rufus tell me about what the plan is for the bet the process podcast for the 2019 year and season and what the plan is between Jeff and yourself? Well, Jeff and I need to get together and, and sort of brainstorm our ideas for the off-season podcasts. I know we want to have a bunch of guests on, which we did last year. And last year, I think we did the podcast about every two weeks during the off-season. And I think we'd like to do it at least that much. I mean, maybe personally, I think we could still do it weekly. But I, I think I want it to be much more focused on on the guests and, and sort of getting some people with unique experiences, both on the gambling side as well as sort of the analytics side and sort of the industry side, and, and especially with with the future of, of sports betting in the United States. So that's and, – and possibly data, the data side. I mean you have a lot of interesting new data coming out and sort of how to – how to implement that data and into models and, and to use that predictively. I think that's that's a fascinating topic. So, Well, two great hosts, I'm sure, will pry and dig deep into a lot of the guests' minds and psyches and figure out all the good stuff. So look forward to following that along, listening in, and thanks again for your time and coming onto the podcast. Thanks for having me.